Morning, friends. I missed you. Thanks. Sitting back in, in worship again today, uh, just hearing the sights and sounds and familiar faces, and uh, it warmed our hearts. Um, I'm really uh, pr- blessed, really blessed uh, to be here, and uh, you've been missed. And we're in Mark's Gospel. Uh, it's, we've been calling it Mark's Open Secret, and we're deep in the story. The secret is going to open up very soon. In fact, it's going to start to open up even in the text today. Uh, so I turn our attention now to Mark chapter 14, verses 53 to 72. I'll read the text, and you can follow along if you like on the screens. Very dramatic, very thick. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, elders, and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance. That's a key point to remember. Peter follows at a distance. Right into the courtyard of the high priest. And there he sat with the guards and he warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. And many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. It's kind of a kangaroo court. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple and in three days build another, not made by people. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent, gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, now this is interesting, this is the first Christologically strong statement given in the Gospel of Mark. Check this out. This is the high priest looking for ways to get Jesus in trouble. And he says this, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes, which meant it was kind of an interior garment. This was, in a sense, blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And so they all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit on him, and they blindfolded him, and they struck him with their fists, and they said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, presumably by the fire, she looked closely at him. 
You were also with the Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said. And then he went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, This fellow, this fellow, he's one of them. And again, a second time, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And he began to call down curses on himself. And he swore to them, I don't know this man. I don't know what you're talking about. Immediately, the, the rooster, the crooster? The crooster, what would be the next appropriate word? The crooster roasted the second time. I, I don't know. Immediately, the rooster Crowed the second time, then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and he wept. The reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together, shall we? Loving and holy God, we often find ourselves in situations where we don't know what to say, we don't know what to do. More often than not, we say too much, and when we speak, we say the wrong things. And whether there's a real rooster crowing behind us, the metaphorical rooster crows. And yet again, we let you down, for that is what it means more often than not to be human apart from the infusion of the Holy Spirit of God. In a world that continually pratters and, and <laughs> prattles incessantly, opining and opinionating their way, sounding more and more like Peter, may we have the courage to sound more and more like Christ. A daunting and audacious challenge. Holy Spirit, come this day. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, this is, this is a profound text, is it not? So the question this morning is, have you ever been caught between a rock and a hard place in a conversation with someone? Now, this conversation could be about anything. It could be about politics. It could be about faith. It could be just about opinions. But have you ever found yourself getting wrapped up in a conversation, and all of a sudden you ask yourself, wait a minute, this isn't going anywhere. How did this just happen? And more importantly, how do I get out of this? It's almost like there's this circular happening of exchange of ideas and yet no one is actually listening to each other and the tension gets thicker and thicker and thicker with no resolution and no apparent way out and all of a sudden we're in this kind of quasi-argument, what do you do? 
How do we stay firm to what we believe, not compromising it, yet not exacerbating the situation by saying too much? And all of a sudden, we're in this really amazing quandary. What to do? One of the, one of the great joys, I suppose, and perhaps dark sides of parenting is Don and I never know when we're going to get a text from one of our children who tend to be in this kind of conversation asking us, what should I do? The fun part is, what time of day those texts actually arrive? You know? And sometimes it's like it's 6.30 in the morning, sometimes it's 11 o'clock at night, and you know, you want to be responsive to your children on the other hand, we're 90% asleep, sweetheart. So I can give you the best we got, considering there's only 10% of us awake to attend to your little scenario here. In fact, last, just a couple weeks ago, our youngest was caught into one of these scenarios, and we were texting feverishly back and forth, and I'm thinking it was about 8 o'clock in the morning. It was before the first cup of coffee. Uh-oh. Turned out okay. I think this text this morning may have something for us, for those kind of situations. I think every one of us, I think we can navigate our way through these types of conflicts by taking a look at, I'm going to suggest three principles right out of the text. Principle number one goes something like this. Know when it's best not to say a word. Amen. <laughs> Who said that? That's Amen Corner. That's not even the Amen Corner. I asked you guys. You're the amen corner, and it came further up. Thank you, Joanne. Principle number one, no one is best just not to say anything or to stop the engagement. Because arguments really don't change things, friends. That's one of the, that's one of maybe the only nugget of wisdom I have to offer at mid-decade of my 50th, right? I've discovered over the years that arguments tend not to change a thing. In fact, People dig in further, right? Paul in Romans says, it's a great little line, it is God's kindness that leads to repentance. Not the argumentation of God. It's God's kindness, gentleness, that leads to repentance, which is really just a turnaround. So principle one, know when it's best not to say anything. Now, out of the text here, Jesus has to go solo. This is an amazing moment in the text. His disciples fell asleep on him, if you can remember a few weeks ago. So the disciples are out of the way. Judas has already betrayed him. So he's got none of the twelve. His, his uber-disciple, Peter. Peter the man. The one in which the church is going to end up being built on is held in profound juxtaposition to Jesus in the story because right after this chunk of story where Jesus says virtually nothing, Peter, you got to love Peter the bonehead, says way too much. So Peter even lets him down. The disciples let him down. Judas lets him down. Peter lets him down. Jesus in the story has to go solo. He's on his own. Humanly speaking, I mean, he really is God, 
the Trinity incarnate. But Jesus has to go alone. And he's brought to trial but in front of the religious leaders. And this trial was really no trial. This was an investigative committee, and the, the deck was stacked against Jesus. And let me tell you why. It was totally a kangaroo court. They break all the rules for these types of investigations. It can't happen on the Sabbath. It was on the Sabbath. It was supposed to be in the high court. It wasn't in the high court. It was in Caiaphas's home. Second check they didn't make. It was supposed to have all 71 elders, and here it just appears as if there's a small sampling of them. And they were only condemning him of a religious crime, not the civil crime that he was later crucified for by the Romans. The witnesses don't agree. Somebody's not telling the truth. And yet then there's this high priest of the group that's trying to trick him and catch him in all these false accusations. He's the one, the first time in Mark's gospel, who, who literally declares who Jesus Christ truly is. The open secret becomes less open. Sorry, more open. Maybe I need a vacation. I need a vacation from my vacation. This open secret starts to become visible to more people. This man is the Son of God. Are you not He? You are the Messiah. Isn't it true? And Jesus just simply says, Little, I am. And all the way through the text, there's this ongoing questioning. Hey, Jesus, aren't you going to say anything? Aren't you going to step up? Aren't you going to defend yourself? Would you please say something? And Jesus, in the infinite wisdom of the God of all creation, basically says, not much. It's kind of like the prophet Isaiah. And I think it's coming shortly. There it is. You guys rock. It's a fulfillment of this text. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. That's some very practical wisdom. In a world where everybody just keeps going back and forth. Jesus says the most by saying nothing. Now hold that in juxtaposition with our good buddy Peter. Any Peters in the house? Yeah, me too, kind of. I think not because I want to be, but because I'm, I feel like I'm forced to be. Well, what do you have to say about this? Well, I really don't want to say anything. The second principle I see coming out of this text is a grace principle. Sometimes our failures can be a grace. They can be a grace. And by the time this story is wrapped up in a few more weeks, this failure will be a grace. See, we know too much. We know how the story ends. 
It's fascinating to me that Peter's kind of following at a distance, right? He's already totally conflicted about who Jesus is, what's happening, so he's kind of, you know, he's incognito. He's following at a distance. He doesn't want to get caught. He doesn't trust himself. He's not even sure what he ought to say. And then in the kangaroo court, there's this servant girl who says, hey, hey, can you be Peter? Hi, Peter. You, you look like you're one of them. You knew this man. No, don't know what you're talking about. No, I didn't. So he denies in knowledge and will. He denies that he knows him, and he denies that he understands the way of the Messiah. And you got to love this. He, he steps further away into the background. Did you catch that detail when I read the story? He's already following at a distance. He's not quite sure. He gets caught the first time, and then he backs further away from Jesus. Isn't that funny how we do that too? We're no, we already know we're in the, in the dark, and so we hang out in the narthex. You know? We, we huddle around in the courtyard because we're not really ready to come in and encounter Jesus the Christ. We're just curious onlookers in other ways. And yet when something happens, it's, we're pushed further away. I love the details of the story. It's just so me and probably many of us here. And in front of more people, he denies Christ again. And then the third denial is all out Peter coming unglued. I mean, the text is actually really soft, you know. It's anathema. He starts swearing his head off. Blanket, I don't know what the blank you're blanking talking about. Sorry about that, but that's really the way it is. I have no idea who this guy is. Shut the blankety blankety. I don't even know how to fill in the blanks, but some of you do. <laughs> Up. Yeah, I think I have some photographs. Okay, so thanks. Um, we were there at this church. This is St. Peter's Church, and this is where Caiaphas's uh, personal home was. So this is a. This is a. Uh, some of us were there. Many of you here today. I've done a quick survey. That this is the church. So let's go to the next slide. I wanted you to get a picture of this. That's a cool picture that we already saw, and it's closer. Thanks, Harry, for taking that. Harry took this picture. I love doors. Maybe I took Who took this? Did you take this? Harry took it. Thank you. Um, great picture. This, again, is this whole scene unfolding inside the church. To me, one of the most beautiful churches in Israel. Let's go to another picture because I want to get to the very last one. That's the ceiling in the church. Is that gorgeous or what? That would kind of work right here. Barbara, Rich, what do you think? Endowment committee, that would be cool. Um, right there. Now, this is what I want us to see, because this is the backyard of Caiaphas's homes, and what they suggest is these are small little rooms where you could, they were temporary holding cells, and when they arrested Jesus, the thinking is they brought Jesus to one of these temporary holding cells in the corner, and then Jesus was brought out of one of these temporary ho 
holding cells into the upper court where this confrontation with the Sanhedrin happened. And Peter was probably hovering down below. There were uh, tiki lamps, you know, those things that you can buy at Home Depot. Uh, they had those things back then. You light them with the oil. They... They even had Home Depot back then, I have a feeling. And he was kind of hiding around those things in earshot, but in the shadows. So this is what they believe. This is the area where this was happening. Now upstage, I don't know what that is. To my right would be, you can kind of see it in the lower corner here, uh, the outdoor patio where this mock kangaroo court trial took place. So I wanted you to see that. Thanks, Casey. Appreciate it. So the second principle, uh, I think, is that even when we fail, it can also be a grace. It can also be a grace. The rooster crows and pain, pain, pain can be a profound teacher. And he broke down and he, he wept the floodgates. Can you imagine the emotions? Peter loved with his whole heart, mind, and soul to the, to the extent that he was able to understand who Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, was and is. And he said, I don't know why. He let him down. He let himself down. And it just came out. There's good news here because the third principle is that God still works. God still works in the midst of these kind of scenarios, even when we blow it. And let me tell you why. Because by the time the story is over, Jesus, in fact, is vindicated. He says everything by saying nothing. He is crucified, dead, buried, resurrected. And Peter is reestablished. Don't you find the grace in that? For both. Perhaps for all of us, the greatest grace of the story is Peter's reestablishment. So Don and I were at a, a movie last night, and I'll tell you what movie it was in a minute. Get all the way through the movie, and surprisingly, there was this great quote that I've not forgotten. And the quote went like this. It's not, it doesn't matter what they deserve, it matters what you believe. And I believe in love. Did anybody see that movie? Okay, how many of you went to Wonder Woman last night? These guys did because they were, right? I mean, it kind of caught me off guard because it's, you know, I wasn't expecting this really great line in a movie at all, period, let alone this one. It's not about what they deserve, it's about what you believe, and I believe in love. Never thought I'd say this. That quote came from Wonder Woman. 
That's a great line. And I thought about Peter, even in the movie. It's not about what Peter deserves. It's got nothing to do with what Peter deserves. In fact, Peter's failure was the ultimate grace in his life. Because of the vindication that comes to him through grace after the crucifixion and the resurrection. Thanks be to God, right? So I'm reading, well, I've read this book. Uh, it's called The Gift of Hard Things. I got time. This is awesome. I wanted to read a story out of here. It's a little lengthy story. I'm breaking rules of speaking. Um, you can do whatever you want with that. Uh, and the reason I'm going to read the story is because it's A, well written, and B, every time I rehearse this ahead of time, I got the details wrong, so I don't trust myself. I'm afraid I'll say too many things. That was funny for me. Because it was out of the text. How you doing, guys? <laughs> All right, here we go. John works as a hospice chaplain and has seen death up close on many occasions. One spring, he was assigned to accompany a middle-aged man named Samuel who was dying of cancer. For six months, John drove to Samuel's small craftsman home and spent weekday afternoons visiting and caring for the dying man. John enjoyed his time with Samuel, and it wasn't long before they were able to talk with honesty about their lives. One afternoon, John asked Samuel about the fears he carried in the face of his own death. Samuel shared that although he felt great sorrow, he was not afraid of dying. I know that God will take care of me. His greatest fear, he confessed, concerned his 16-year-old son. Ever since I'd been diagnosed with cancer, my son Henry had become increasingly withdrawn and distant. Samuel, his father, confessed, I worried that this will permanently scar Henry. He's so angry, I've tried to talk with him, but he just stays quiet. Sometimes he, he can't even look at me. Henry's always been the kind of kid who keeps things to himself. I'm worried he'll fall into a deep, deep depression and won't be able to pull out of it. Samuel turned to John, the chaplain, and, and said, Can I ask you a favor? Will you try to talk to Henry? Even after I'm gone, will you try to help? And John, the chaplain, he promised he would do this. A few days later, John took Henry out for lunch. The meeting was awkward. John asked all the tedious questions that adults often ask high school students, like, how is school? Do you have any hobbies? The only reason I think this is funny is because I've done this a hundred times or more. And it, it is a little awkward. You just kind of power through it. What do you want to do when you get older? Visibly depressed, Henry responded with shrugs and one-word answers like, no, fine, don't know. Sounds like all my kids. After an uneasy silence, John told Henry that his parents were worried about him. He asked Henry if he had any questions. Head down and expressionless, Henry gave 
absolutely no reaction. Feeling out of place, John said, well, if you have any questions, you can call me anytime. And he handed Henry a, a business card with his phone number. And as they stood to leave, John looked back and noticed Henry had thrown the card on the floor. John drove Henry back to his home, and after John pulled the car alongside the curb, Henry opened the passenger door, turned back, looked at John, and said, I just have one question. How will I know my dad will be okay after he dies? John thought for a moment. I don't know. How can anyone know? He said to himself. But for some reason, John didn't give this response. John acted like Peter, you see. He's going to give too much. Instead, he was surprised to hear himself say with confidence, Oh, you'll know. I'm sure you're going to know. Something will happen. You'll know for sure. I promise you that you'll know. The boy studied John's face for a moment. Then he stepped out of the car and walked inside. Immediately, John, the chaplain, regretted what he had said. How can I make such a promise? I should have been more careful, more diplomatic, more open-ended. I shouldn't have overpromised. The weeks passed. Samuel, the father's health, deteriorated. And finally, in early summer, he passed away. John was asked to officiate the service. And after the service ended, when all the guests had departed, John stood beside the casket with Henry and his mother. Immersed in grief, they stood staring silently at the casket, at the bleak, mysterious finality of death. And as they stood, a yellow and black swallowtail butterfly quietly flew above them and landed right at the head of the casket. And still worried about his impulsive promise to Henry, John turned to the boy and gestured at the butterfly as if to say, look, see, there's your sign right there. He's okay. Henry noticed the butterfly and then looked at John. Henry's eyes, he, they burned with contempt. A bug lands on my dad's casket and that's supposed to mean something to me? You're pathetic. Boy turns and walks away. His mother Marion watched him go. He's angry, she said to John. He's just angry. Yeah, and John said, I think I've only made things worse. I promised he'd know for certain that his dad would be okay after he died, and I know deep down I shouldn't have done that. The mother put her hand on John's back. I thank you for what you've done for us. He's not your responsibility. I'd appreciate it if you'd just say a prayer for... Henry, every once in a while. Feeling helpless and embarrassed, John nodded his head, hugged the woman, and they all departed. On the drive home, John was overwhelmed with despair. He felt like a failure as a chaplain. He was unable to comfort Henry. The boy was right. His gesture at that butterfly was desperate and pathetic. And feeling despondent, John did something he rarely did. He began to pray out loud in his car, God help Henry. I don't know what to do. I blew it. Please, God, please. John continued to drive home out of desperation. 
Finally, he arrived at his apartment. He walked inside, but before he could take off his jacket, the cell phone rang. It was Marion, the boy's mother. John, her voice was very animated. Yes. John, I need you to come over to our house. I need you to come over right now. John says, is everybody okay? Yes, yes, everyone's fine. Please, John, just get in your car. Drive over here as soon as you can. John ran out of his apartment, got in his car, and drove the familiar route to Samuel's house. He walked up the front, front porch and found the door open and ajar. He stepped inside. Hello? There were sounds coming from the downstairs bedroom, the bedroom where John had spent so many afternoons caring for Samuel during the last months of his life. Hello? John shouted. We're down here, Marion called. John walked down the stairs through the hallway to the room where Samuel died. He carefully swung the door open, stopped, and stared in wonder. The room, it was filled with butterflies. Yellow, broad-winged, swallow-tailed butterflies. There were butterflies gathered on the bed, butterflies airing their wings on the side table, butterflies perched on Marion's shoulders, butterflies fluttering in the air and in and out of the bedroom window that had been propped open just that morning. Rocking in a chair by his father's bed was Henry. The boy, he was rocking back and forth, back and forth. Laughing and crying and laughing and crying and laughing and crying. Somehow, somewhere deep within me, I trust this story. More than trust, I know this story is true. It doesn't make sense. My rational mind fails to make the equation work. Death is always pain and loss, period, the end. And yet, and yet, now there's this story that I experienced in my life. Yeah, friends, sometimes we find ourselves in these cycles. We say too much. We don't know how to get out of it. Sometimes saying nothing is probably the best approach. But even those times when we say too much, saying too much can be a grace. Why? Because God still got this thing. God still got this thing. Amen? Let's pray. It's not about what we deserve. It's about what we believe. And we are people who believe in Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God. And for that reason, we love all people to life. And the truth of the matter is, sometimes we're better at it than other times. But God, God, thank you. Thank you so much that you've got this thing. May we find rest and hope and peace and forgiveness and assurance 
for our soul. In your name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you.